So last week, we talked about being mature. That was the theme. It was called mature manhood. And we talked about the reality that, that the Christian life, the natural flow of the Christian life should be spiritual growth. And so it, it, it is abnormal for somebody to say that they're a believer and that they're not growing towards Christ-likeness. That, 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 that is like saying that somebody that is alive is not breathing. Right? If you're not breathing, that means you're dead. And so the same is true in the Christian life. It is just as natural as breathing for a Christian to grow towards Christ-likeness. Now, I will admit that we're all at different stages of spiritual growth and some of us have different struggles than other people. But the goal is, the purpose is, is that when we are born again and we, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, that from the moment we place faith in Christ, we begin the journey, the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus. And that's not an easy process, is it? Right away, there's some, e- there's some immediate changes that take place, and those seem to be the easy ones. And then you go on in your, your Christian life, and the Lord has to take out the chisel and the hammer, and he starts chiseling, starts chiseling away on your life, and sometimes it's painful whenever you, you hear the Word of God taught, and it reminds you of an area that you haven't really grown in yet. And, and the Lord's chiseling and the Lord's working and he's molding and shaping us. And that's the natural flow of our life is that we as believers would be mature. We would be mature. And that's what verse 13 in Ephesians 4 said is that, is that we need to be mature as adults. Mature adults in the faith. And then as we transition to verse 14, it says this amazing thing. It says that the reason behind why we need to be mature is so that we would not be like children. We need to be mature in the faith so that we will not be like children. How many of you know it's easy to deceive a child? Some of you are like, well, it's easy to to deceive me, and I've been around a while, (laughs) right? Sometimes we can be duped, but you take a child, and a child is easily deceived. And why is a child easily deceived? Because a child doesn't understand the world yet. For a child, a child only really thinks about its immediate surroundings and, and environment and they can't really think broad thoughts and they, they can't process layers of, of understanding. They have kind of singular thinking. And so a child can be easily deceived. And, and I would like to read a, a, a poem to kind of illustrate how children can be easily deceived. This is a poem called Smart by Shel Silverstein. It says this. My dad gave me one dollar bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. Then I took the two quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he didn't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes And four is more than three. And then I took the nickels to Haram Coombs down at the seed feed store. And the fool gave me five pennies for them. And five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad. And he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. (laughs) Isn't that a great example? Right? I remember uh, Brother Denny Chase can tell a story. We went to kids camp and, and, you know, we'd have a snack shop at the kids camp. And this 
kid. I don't know how old he was, but he's definitely under the age of 12. And he, he probably was seven, eight years old. And he goes to the snack shop and he had a $20 bill or a $10 bill or something like that. And he, he pays for his icy, which was a couple of bucks. And he comes back, he goes to Brother Denny and he says, I don't know what happened. They, they made a mistake. Like I gave them one and I've got like five or six more. Like he was sincerely, his life was this poem right here. Like he really believed he, he like swindled them. Or they made a mistake, but he wasn't going to go give it back either. He was excited about it. And so that's the, that's the contrast here. You have mature manhood and you have the vulnerability and the naive nature of children. That children can be easily deceived. And the Apostle Paul, speaking on behalf of the Lord, is encouraging us that we need to be mature so that we will not be like children. So that we will not be deceived. Let's look at Ephesians 4.14. It says this. It ends, verse 13 ends, and says that we need to be as mature, uh, attain to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the point is this, is that the reason that the Lord wants us to be mature is so that we will not be deceived. The Lord wants us to be mature as believers so that we will not be duped by false teaching and false teachers. He wants us to be mature in our understanding of God and his word so that we will not be tossed to and fro by the waves. And when you think of wind and you think of waves and they're blowing against a ship or they're blowing against a person, there's it's the picture of instability. It's the picture of that whenever something comes and hits against your life, if you're unstable and if you are not grounded in God's word, then the winds and the waves hit you. The winds of false doctrine, the the waves of false belief systems hit you and, 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 and and you're at their mercy. And you just kind of go along with it. But the goal is, is that as a church, that as we grow into Christ's likeness, that, that as we take in God's word, that our footing is solid. And that when false systems of belief come into our, into our eye gates and our ear gates, that we have the ability to be discerning. One of the greatest needs, I said last week, that one of the greatest marks of a healthy church is the Christ-likeness of the church. To me, that is the greatest mark of the health of a church, is its Christ-likeness. One of the greatest needs of our church and of every church is that the believers would have discernment would have spiritual discernment that, would, that we would be able to, that whenever we come across information, we hear things from our culture, we hear things from false religious systems, that we would be able to be discerning, that we would not be duped, that we would not follow off, follow off into myths, that we would not follow off into trails that the enemy would want us to go on that would lead us down paths that are unhealthy for us and our family. The Apostle Paul encouraged us to continue to grow. The enemy's goal, listen to this, the enemy's goal is to keep unbelievers in their unbelief. And how does he do that? By telling them lies. By telling them lies. By continuing to put before them beliefs about what is ultimate and those beliefs are not true. And he keeps, tries to keep them in their unbelief. But he does this also in the Christian's life. In the believer's life, his goal is to get the believer distracted with belief systems that will keep them from properly understanding God and his ways and his calling on their life. It's the same tactic. It's the same idea. He wants to keep unbelievers in their unbelief and he wants to keep believers distracted with things that are not 
true. Chasing after things that are not healthy and good for your life and for your family. So what I want to do is, I want to do this. I want to get practical with you. And, and, and I want to show you how God's word speaks truth to us. And I want to contrast that truth with what is not true. And I want to show you that pattern in three primary areas. I believe there are three primary areas, categories, that the enemy uses to bring false belief in. And these are the three categories. The nature of man, the person of Christ, and the primary purpose of the gospel. The nature of man, the purpose of Christ, and the primary purpose of the gospel. And so, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at all three of these categories, and we're going to look at truth, we're going to look at what Scripture says, and then we're going to contrast truth with error. And this is the goal, is that I want you to see this pattern. I want you to see how God's Word reveals truth to us. And I want you to see how that truth should shape the way that we think. And that should be the pattern that any time a truth claim comes across your ears, that you're able to bring it to Scripture and to say, okay, is that true or is that a lie? Is this real or is this false? And so let's begin this process. The first thing we're going to look at is going to look at the nature of man. The nature of man. What does God's Word say about the nature of man? This would be the study of anthropology. Anthropology answers the questions, who is man and what is his nature. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 27. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created in his, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That's God's word. It spoke some, some, some truths. I'm going to look at those truths in a moment. Psalms 139, what does God's word say about the nature of man? Who is man? Psalms 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Two big scriptures here. Two big pictures of reality as concerning who we are as as humans. What's the truth? As scripture tells us. And this is just two scriptures we're bringing out here. We could bring out, I could have brought out a bunch of other scriptures, but for the sake of time and getting you out in time to watch the Falcons lose... I limited it to two here. What's the truth? All people are created by God and are therefore intrinsically valuable. That's what scripture says over and over and over again. All people are created by God and are intrinsically valuable. Doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, your background, your history. You are created by God. And that's the truth of scripture. But The culture, the world, the enemy, Satan wants to tell you this. Here's the lie. Human life is a result of natural selection and the survival of the fittest. We're just the result of a cosmic accident. We're the result of evolution over billions and billions of years of evolution. And none of us have intrinsic value because we are the result of an accident. 
They may not come right out and say that. Now, there are some people that really will say that because they have no hope in this life and, they've re- and they really believe that system. But for the most part, people who believe evolution, believe natural selection, believe the survival of the fittest, they, those who really believe that, they don't, they don't understand what they're believing when they believe that. There are consequences to believing that we're accidents. There are consequences to believing that. What are, what's one of the consequences? Is that life is not ultimately valuable. Life is not ultimately precious. And so if life is not ultimately precious, then, then we can do with life what we want. Then, 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 then you see the consequences in our culture throughout history. You see the, the, the systematic murder of human life throughout our history in many different ways. You see it with Hitler and the Jews. You see it with abortion in our culture. You see it over and over again in our history. Life is not valuable. Life is not precious. And if life is not precious and there's no meaning and purpose behind life, then why live? Why fight for the sanctity of life? But I'm here to tell you that every life is valuable. One of the other consequences in our culture of believing the lie that we're all the result of a cosmic accident, that life is not valuable, is that one man can look at another man and say that I am more valuable because my skin color looks different. And that's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. All of us, we all come from one blood, the blood of Adam. Every race, every nation, every people group, we come from one. And that is the truth of Scripture. And there are consequences to believing differently. That men can place themselves up on a pedestal over other men because they believe they are superior. And that is a consequence to not believing correctly. Our view of the sanctity of human life is changed by our understanding of God's word. When God's word hits your mind, you have a decision to make. What am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what the culture says? Am I going to believe what they're telling me? Or or, or am I going to believe what scripture says? And scripture tells me that all life is valuable. Amen? Let's keep going on. Talking about the nature of man. The first thing, first truth we hear is that all human beings are valuable. Intrinsically valuable. What else do we know about the nature of man? Genesis 3 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What's this portion of scripture describing? The fall. The fall of Adam and Eve. And the plunging of humanity into the curse of sin. Psalm 51.5 says this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, the human heart stained by sin, by original sin, stained by a sinful nature is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can comprehend the heart? Who can understand it? And then into the New Testament, Romans 3 says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So what's the truth? What does scripture tell us? Firstly, it tells us that men are intrinsically valuable. Then it tells us, 
in strong terms, and these are just a few verses, the truth is this, is that mankind, since the fall, is born with a sinful nature. We are born with an inclination towards rebellion against our parents and God. How many of you, you know that's true? I never had to teach my kids to rebel against me. They naturally love it. They love to rebel against me. I, I mean, Joel's growing out of it. Joel's shaking his hand at me. No, but, but, but they do. They, they do. He's, he's maturing in his faith to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But those, those, those little ones, 18 months and older, oh, right? We'd have to teach my kids to rebel. It's, it's built in them, in in iniquity they were conceived. They were brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me born with sinful natures. That is the reality of the human condition. But what does, the, what does the Satan say? What does the culture say? Mankind is basically good. This is the lie. Mankind is basically good and it was an evil society which corrupts mankind. An evil society is what corrupts. Look, I've heard the argument. I've heard the argument. I've heard intelligent people I've heard so-called intelligent people say when, when, you, when, when you get to the question of evil, where did evil come from? And when you get to that question, I've heard people with PhDs behind their name say, well, it's because people are in evil society, in evil society, and that's what corrupts them. I'm like, wait a minute. The next question you should ask is, what corrupted the society? Right? You don't need a, you don't need a PhD at the end of your name to figure that one out. A society cannot corrupt an individual unless the society was corrupt first. And every society in the history of humanity has been corrupted since the fall. And that's what scripture teaches us. And so what are the consequences of believing that men are basically good and that we're not sinful? The consequences are, is that if if we believe that as society, then, then, then why is there a need for a God? Why, why is there a need for redemption? What is sin? If you look at somebody who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe in redemption and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and you tell them that they need to be saved, they need to be born again, what does that even mean if they don't have an understanding of the reality that they are sinful by nature? It doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense. But there's consequences to believing wrongly about this subject. If you don't believe rightly, then you don't understand your desperate need for a savior. You don't understand that you desperately need a Savior, that there's nothing you can do that can save yourself. And that leads us to this next truth and lie. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Verse 4 says this, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, spiritually dead, blinded to the truth of God, he made us alive together with Christ. Listen to this. By grace you've been saved. Listen. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. What does that scripture tell us? Here's the truth. As you read scripture, Truth says this, salvation is a gift of God. It is not based upon our own merits or our own ability to earn it. That's what scripture says. Salvation is grace. It's a free gift. You can't earn it and you certainly don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve grace. It's a free gift. We can't earn it. What does the culture tell us? Because the culture, inspired by Satan, believes that we're basically good. We're inherently good. 
What do they say? They say this, that mankind can find peace in this life and the afterlife through self-effort and good works. Think of all the belief systems out there that fall under this lie. All the false belief systems out there. This is where it is centered. That it's a belief that, that I don't need God. I don't need a religious system. I can just be good enough to earn God's approval. And even those who say I don't believe in God at all and I'm, and I'm an atheist, they're counting on something for when they die. And they're counting on themselves and their ability to understand. There's consequences. So what are the effects of not having a biblical understanding of the nature of man? Humanity is undervalued. Humanity is undervalued when you don't see man correctly through scripture. The ability of man is overestimated. And man is, is thought to be everything in a bag of chips. They can do anything. Listen, I hear the messages all the time that you're able, you're capable, you can do it. The power is in you. I want you to know if apart from Christ, the power is not in you. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have the power in you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and become right with God. There is a self-effort, a strong will, egotistical view of humanity that we can do it, I can make it happen, and it's contrary to what Scripture tells us. There can be an overestimation of man and their ability. We are are so flawed. We We are intrinsically flawed. We are guilty. We need forgiveness and redemption, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us daily to obey God's word. So humanity is undervalued. The ability of man is overestimated. And then moral goodness is found within ourselves. That's the consequence of not believing correctly about the nature of man. Do you guys follow me? Every wind, every wave of doctrine, you must go to God's word. You have to go to God's word. And if you, go to, if you don't go to God's word, somebody comes and they can give you a persuasive argument. And they, and they can convince you that, yeah, you've got it in you. You can do it. You can make it. You can be good enough. You can earn God's approval. They can try to convince you. But when you know scripture, when you are mature in the faith and your maturity is spurred on through God's word, then you will have the tools necessary to say, no, that's not true. That's not true. That person's valuable intrinsically because they are made in God's image. And I, and I need God's grace. If the power's not within me, I don't care what you're, Self-help guru tells you, you can say clearly that salvation is only by grace and that there is no moral goodness inherently in us. Okay, so that's the first category of lies that center around the nature of man. Let's look at the second category as we move on here. The person of Christ. And this is going to hone in a little closer in. The person of Christ. Who is Christ? What does God's word say about Jesus John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word, this Word that was in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John 8 says this about Jesus. Jesus says this, excuse me, about himself in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Jews told Jesus he had a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? 
and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Okay, here we go. The Jews asked it. The religious leaders asked it. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You say that my Father is your God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Some of the people think Jesus is kind of timid. You think he's timid right there? Man, Jesus just cuts to the chase. Sometimes I I can be accused of saying things that are sharp and to the point. I I don't touch anything that Jesus says. He cuts straight. He says, you're a liar. I'm not a liar like you. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. This is what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, I'm gonna speak plainly. I'm gonna tell you who who I am. I existed before Abraham, your father did. So who am I? I'm God. Colossians 1 says this, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what does scripture tell us? What's the truth about the person of Christ? The truth is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He existed before creation and created all things. He humbled himself in the incarnation and became as one of us. And then he took upon himself in, on the cross. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. He absorbed the wrath of God in our place. This is who Jesus is. What's the lie of our culture? What's the lie of Satan? The lie is this, that Jesus was simply a historical figure who was a good man who taught beautiful truisms. That's the lie. But listen, if you say you believe in Jesus, and you say you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, then you ignore Scripture if you believe that he was just a man and he would just came to speak beautiful truisms. That's not what he claimed to be. Jesus, Christianity is not based upon a religion of a man who just came to be good and to teach us how to be good. Because if, if it would have been that way, he wouldn't have declared the statements that he declared. He declared over the top, over and over again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. He made it clear that, that, that to follow him was not just following a man that, 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 that paid the good path. Following him, him meant that you were repenting and following God. That's what he made it clear to be. But our culture tells us that Jesus was just a historical figure. He was a good man. And you can follow a good man, follow his principles. You have many men that would be good that you can say well I'll follow their ways and I'll follow their opinions and their ideas and it works for my life but that's not what Christianity is so whenever you hear those things in any false religious system where the deity of Christ is minimized it is a false system of belief 
You cannot believe correctly about Jesus if you do not believe he is the only son of God. That's what scripture says. That's what we hold to be true, that God's word is true and every man is a liar. And when the deity of Christ is put on the bottom, then it's a false belief system. Christ must be exalted and worshiped as God. Amen? Let's continue on. The person of Christ. John 14 says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And, and you know the, the way I'm going. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. We're confused. We're like little children here. We have no idea what's going on. How can we know the way? What did Jesus say here? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except through me. Wow. That's what Jesus said. He said he was the way, the only way. He was the truth, the only truth. He was the life, the only life. And that if you were going to get to the Father, to heaven, to God, the only way to get there was through him. He said he was the door. He was the door. John 10, he's the door. The only way to get into the sheepfold is to get in through the door. And there's only one entrance, and he is the door. And it's through faith in him that that door is opened. Acts 4 says this. This is after the the day of Pentecost. And this is Peter speaking. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what's the truth about the person of Christ? He is God. He was God, eternal God. He was God in the flesh. He was God become man so that he could take upon the penalty of sin. But he was God that was raised on the third day, seated eternally in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, what scripture tells us is that the truth is that there is only one way to heaven. There is only one name we must surrender to, and that's the name of Jesus. That's the truth. If you say you believe the Bible and you don't believe that, you believe your Bible incorrectly because the Bible plainly states that God's word plainly states that Jesus is the only way. Well, what's the lie in our culture? The lie is this. All roads lead to the same destination. And what's the standard? Sincerity. Sincerity is the standard. Just if you're sincere. I mean, I've heard the argument. If you're sincere and you genuinely believe what you believe, sincerity is the standard. But the reality of Scripture as believers in God's holy word, sincerity is not the standard. What's the standard? Belief and faith. That's the standard. Jesus sets the standard. Jesus is God. He's not man. He's God, eternal God. And he has the right to set the standards because he rose from the dead. And he's eternally seated at the right hand of the Father, so he sets the rules. And so you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong in your belief because you have not believed correctly about the person of Christ. And stop and think about all of the belief systems in our culture, the winds and the waves that beat on people's lives and and tell them and point them away from Christ being the only way. I was listening to this. I was listening to this uh, video yesterday. I just want to, I'm just going to say this. 
I'm going to come out and say this was not in my notes. This was not planned, but we're just going to, we're just going to say it because I feel like I need to say it. So sincerity, this is the idea. Sincerity is the standard, right? Now we're going to kind of go back to our first discussion about the nature of man and who man is. And I want you to see how sincerity is really wrong. You know, it's, it's this video I was watching and this guy had a table out at a college campus and the table said, there are only two genders. Change my mind. There are only two genders. Change my mind. And it was on the table. And so he was taking interviews, taking interviews. People would come and sit down and would discuss with him, try to convince him that there were more than two genders, male and female. Do you remember back when we read in Genesis 1 that he created male and female? He created them. God gets to decide how many genders we have in this life, right? And he wasn't even coming from a biblical argument. This guy's not even a Christian. Trust me, I watched the video. He's not a Christian. So I'm not telling you his name. Um, but you'll probably search it anyway. And so here's one person after the other came and began, began to give their argument. And here was their argument, that it's, it's about how I feel. It's my sincerity. If I sincerely believe that I'm something that I'm not, you can't tell me that I'm not. Because I believe that. There's no objective truth in our culture anymore. We hold the standard of objective truth in our culture about ultimate things. And this is why it's going to be increasingly difficult to hold that standard up because because sincerity in our culture is the standard of truth. And he looked at the person, he looked at the lady that was telling him that and he said, well, i got a question for you. If I sincerely believe I'm a bobcat, what would you tell me? And she said, well, I would tell you, be the best bobcat you can be. She said, she said, if that makes you happy, being a bobcat, then I want to, I want to make sure that you identify, I want to honor your, your identification. So the standard is what? It's sincerity and happiness, right? If I sincerely believe something, well, it's got to be true. Are you serious? Where have we gone in a culture? If I sincerely believe something, it has to be true. No, the standard is God's word. God sets the parameters because he is God. Amen? He's God. We're not. So what are, what are the consequences of believing that sincerity is the standard? All roads lead to the same destination. This, the, 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 the problem is, is if we don't see Jesus correctly, then Jesus was not God in the flesh, and he died but did not rise. That's the consequence, and he was, and he was just a, a historical figure. And we could just follow his truisms, and, and that would be Okay. That's, that's one of the consequences. Another con- consequence is that Jesus is simply one of the many options for those seeking spiritual enlightenment. And we believe that that is not true. We believe what Scripture says. Let's switch to the third, as we close here, this third area, category. You guys following what I'm doing here this morning? I'm wanting you to, I'm wanting you to see Scripture. I want you to, to understand what Scripture establishes. And I, and I want to spur your thinking about the way our world thinks. And, and, and help us, help us to whenever we hear the lies, we hear things that are crazy, that we can say, wait a minute, that's not true. That's not true because I believe God's word is true. This is what God's word says. The third category, the primary purpose of the gospel. Acts 2, 36 through 38 says this, let all those of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent 
And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were, for, for, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God. So what's the truth? What's scripture tell us right there in those two sections? truth is this the primary purpose of the gospel is to save us from the wrath of God that we deserve it's the primary purpose over and over and over again in scripture you see in Jesus's writings in the gospel you see you you see in apostle Paul's writing you see over and over again that the primary purpose of the gospel is that we would be saved it's a gospel of salvation it's a gospel that we're being saved from something We're being saved from the penalty of our sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one, as we read earlier in Romans 3. And because of that, there's wrath that we deserve that would, would be coming on us unless we repent. The primary purpose of the gospel is to save us from the wrath of God that we deserve. What's the lie? This is a subtle one. Listen, the lie is this, that the primary purpose of the gospel is to help you live a better life. Now this, this is, before we're kind of dealing with outside of the church. Now we're going to come inside the church. Now we're going to come inside the church. We're going to come inside uh, uh, places where people call themselves Christians and teachers who call themselves Christian teachers. We're, we're coming into our realm. The lie is this, that the primary purpose of the gospel is to help you live a better life. Is that it? Is that, is that, is that really all it can be? That, that, that God wrote this book and declared that Jesus is God in the flesh? Then he rose from the dead. He took upon himself the penalty of my sins. And really, it's ultimately about just living a better life. This life that I know I'm going to die one day and spend eternity in heaven. This life that is just a blip on the radar. This life, as the book of James says, is but a vapor. It's here one day and it's gone the next. That the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Jesus absorbing the wrath of God is so that you would be happy. Is that the ultimate purpose? I want you to hear me. That lie can be subtly taught over and over and over again. And you have to be discerning. You have to be discerning. What is it that I'm listening to? What is it that I'm hearing? Am I the center of what I'm hearing? Am I the center of the message that I'm listening to? Am I the center of the gospel, center of Christianity? Or is it the glory of Christ? Or is it his name being exalted? The primary purpose of the gospel is not so that you would have a better life. You can figure out how to have a better life a lot easier than this. Can't you? Right? You can pursue a lot of other things and try to have a better life. There's many people who will tell you, I can tell you how to have a better life. And you don't have to believe all of this stuff. The primary purpose of the gospel is not that we'd have a better life. It's that we would be saved from the wrath of God. John 16, says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart I've overcome the world. What did Jesus say? That's Jesus speaking. What what did Jesus say there? He said, in this life, you will have what? Tribulation. 
John 15, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were of the world and like the world, the world would love you as its own. That's the book of Romans. You guys remember back in the book of Romans chapter 1 when it says that that people rebel against God and they live in ungodly ways? It says that they give approval, hearty approval to those who live just like them. It says here, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, remember The word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, the name of Jesus, because they do not know him who sent me. So what's the truth here? In this life, we will suffer. That's the truth. In this life, we will suffer. We don't preach a gospel that we are the center of the gospel. We don't preach a gospel. We don't preach a gospel that tells you that you're not going to suffer. Because here's what happens. Listen, listen. We're almost done. I just want, this is so important. This is, I'm, this is so, listen, listen to me. I want to help you as your pastor. Listen. If you believe messages that tell you that, that, that you become a Christian, and when you become a Christian, that, that, that your suffering is going to cease, and that, and that it is a cure-all to your problems, and that you're never going to be sick, and that you're going to always be healed. If you believe those lies, you're going to go down a path of disillusionment. You will, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to say, wait a minute, I quoted the promises. I read the faith scriptures. I did what they told me I needed to do, and I still got cancer, or my loved one still died of cancer. Scripture does not tell us that we will not get sick. Scripture does not tell us that we will not suffer. Actually, the opposite is true. The Lord of our faith, Jesus Christ, says in this life you will have tribulations. The point of Christianity is not to stop you from suffering. It's not to stop the pain from happening. It's that you would have faith in the middle of the pain is that you would have the object of your faith that would sustain you. And that's what we sung about on that last song. You are good. God, you are good. You will never let me down because my faith is not, my faith is not in what you can do for me. My faith is in you. Amen? The lie is this. The truth is in this life we will suffer. The lie is, is that as believers, if we have enough faith, our suffering will end. It's not true. We have to be steady. We have to be solid. We need the word of God to anchor us. Last, Revelation 7. As we're concluding here, Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, listen, listen, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture of heaven. This is what heaven will look like. This is from Revelation. This is the future. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. What did it say there? Earlier, first verse, verse 9 in in Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what were those people doing? Worshiping Jesus. What's the truth? 
What's the primary purpose of the gospel? The primary purpose of the gospel is that men and women from every nation, tribe, people, and language would worship and glorify God. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. You can can take everything from me. You can take my money. You can take my health. You can take the respect of of humans. You You can take all my possessions. But at the end of the day, if I have faith in Jesus Christ and I stand before the throne one day and I worship the Lord, I have fulfilled the primary purpose of the gospel. That is to glorify God. Amen? The effects of wrong understanding and the purpose of the gospel are this. It's that the purpose of the gospel becomes our temporary happiness. And then we become the center of the gospel in place of the glory God. The ways in which, hear me, the ways in which we can be deceived by the enemy are countless. This is why it is imperative that we commit ourselves to study God's word. This is why we're, this is why we're systematically going through books of the Bible. This is why we're going through Ephesians. This is why we're going to study God's word is that we want to know God's word. We want to dig into God's word on Sundays, on Wednesdays, and, and you need to dig into God's word every day on your own. Because we need to be grounded. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Some translations use the word schemes. He's a schemer. The devil's a liar. He's a schemer and he wants to outwit you. Hear me. He wants to outwit you. He wants to outwit those in the world. We test all things by scripture. As our understanding of the word of God increases, our spiritual discernment will increase. And we will be able to spot the lies of the enemy quickly. If I would tell you who we should be like, it would be summarized in Acts 17, 10 through 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Listen, they received the word with all eagerness. Here's what they did. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's what you should do. That's what we should do. You shouldn't just lightfully believe what what, what I have to say. Examine the scriptures. Go home. Examine. See if what I say is true. That's our responsibility. As we do that, as we dig into God's word, we will be fortified in our Christian life against the winds and the waves of false doctrine and false teachers. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning as we conclude? So what is God's word? What is the Bible? We believe the Bible is God's word, but what does God's word do? First, it does this. It reveals who God is. It reveals who God is. We can know clearly who God is. Secondly, it gives us a right view of humanity. We can understand. These are ultimate things, right? These are the big questions of life. Who is God? Is there a God? Scripture gives us a right view of God. Why am I here? Who am I? What is my purpose? Scripture, God's word, helps us understand who we are as humans. The Bible also shows us God's plan of salvation. How can a sinful human being be redeemed and saved and forgiven? Through Jesus Christ. And then it teaches us how to live out our faith. 
This is, what, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. We learn how to live out our faith. It protects us from the lies of Satan. And it helps us find our place in God's kingdom. That's what the Bible is for. It's what God's word does. It reveals who God is. It gives us a right view of humanity. It shows us salvation. Helps us live out our faith. Protects us. And helps us find our place. Amen. As you bow your heads with me this morning as we close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you, God, that your word protects us. God, I thank you for your people that are here this morning, for your sons and your daughters, your precious sons and daughters that are made in your image and your likeness. I thank you that they are intrinsically valuable, that you love them, you love them. God, I thank you, Lord, that your word protects us from the lies of the enemy, the lies of our culture that are motivated by Satan. God, I pray that we would commit ourselves to continuing to grow in the faith, to be, to be mature adults in the faith so that we'll not be like children, so that we will not be easily deceived, so that we won't just take everything in that we hear, but that we will be like the noble Bereans, that we will examine daily the scriptures. Well, that is our prayer. Lord, seal that in our hearts. Seal it in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.